So before we jump in, I want to give you all a moment to reflect on this question. Uh, what's an immersive experience that you've had that you know, really engaged your senses? Uh, or maybe it impacted you in ways that you weren't expecting. Uh, so maybe a dining experience, maybe a type of concert, maybe a, a Thai massage that for me was actually very stressful and painful. <laughs> The guy kept tapping me. He's like, relax. I was like, I can't relax. I'm not sure what direction you're pulling me next. It's like, I'm not doing this again. Um, or if you can't think of an example, what's an immersive experience that you would like to try or that you'd want to try? All right, so I'll give you a moment. Think about that. And if you want, share with someone next to you. All right, so what are some experiences that you've had or what are some experiences that you would like to consider. I heard some like screaming over there. Any thoughts? Throw out some experiences that you've had, anyone? Meow Wolf. Meow Wolf. All right. Very immersive experience. Which one did you go to? Santa Fe. There's one in Vegas too, right? Anyone else? Immersive experience? What's that? Sound bell. Bath. bath. Sound bath. Got it. I am unaware of this. <laughs> so, I was going to say something, but I know nothing about sound bath. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, no. <laughs> Last time you got high. Fair. That's fair enough. Sorry. I saw a hand back there. Boot camp. Oh, that sounds very immersive. <laughs> Um, so for me, I recently read about this one experience that if I had the opportunity, I'd really like to try. Uh, there was a New York Times writer uh, who visited the quietest place on earth, uh, which is actually a, a, an anechoic chamber. It's like a quiet chamber. Uh, it's located in the Orfield Laboratories in Minneapolis. And it's so quiet inside the chamber that there's literally no ambient noise. Uh, and all you hear is your own body functioning. Uh, so apparently a decade ago, the longest anyone could stay in this room was like 45 minutes because it was just so disorienting uh, and so intense. Uh, but this writer described her visit of sitting inside the chamber in complete darkness. And the silence was so disturbing that she began to hear things that she normally couldn't hear. Like she could actually hear her heart beating. She could hear her eyebrows when she would raise them. She could hear like her hair um, just rustling. And apparently there were others who could actually hear their blood flowing through their veins, which if that happened to me at that point, I'm out. <laughs> right? It's like, I need to get out of here. Um, but being in this immersive experience, uh, it just allowed her to experience new sounds uh, and, and sensations and even normal movements would sound different and louder. And so in the same way, you know, as we're in this season of epiphany, it's about experiencing and understanding God, maybe in a way we hadn't noticed before, uh, or maybe that we've misunderstood. Epiphany is about God being revealed through the person of Jesus, and then Jesus giving us a more accurate glimpse of God, maybe even clearing up some misconceptions that we have. And so in our lectionary text for this morning, we find Jesus interacting with those who are curious about him. And so he extends an invitation to come and see 
what his life is about. To enter into this immersive experience with him by being present to observe and learn what he was teaching and modeling. And the hope was that maybe they would discover things about God that they might have misunderstood, whether it was the nonviolence of God or the inclusion of the marginalized or the offering of love without condition. And so the question I want to explore is how might we be invited to immerse ourselves in the life and story of Christ? That even as we navigate our daily responsibilities and distractions, like how might we discover rhythms and moments of immersing ourselves in the way of Christ? And as we read about the disciples encountering Christ, we'll notice three different names or titles that Jesus is called. He's called the Lamb of God, Rabbi, and Messiah. And we'll see how each of those give us insight into how we're invited to be immersed in the way of Christ. And so we start in verse 35. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Which makes you almost feel a bit bad for John, right? It's like he has two followers, and then he points out Jesus, and then they peace out. <laughs> They're like, we're going to follow Jesus. But for John the Baptist, he was fully immersed in this like prophet life. He was living out in the wilderness. He was trying to point people towards what was to come. He was preparing people for this promised Messiah, right? Someone who would rescue them, free them from the oppression they were under. And so when he identifies Jesus, he calls him the Lamb of God, which is the first title that's used for him. And for those living during that time, hearing that phrase would resonate with, for them for, for a couple reasons. First, they would recall the Passover lamb. In the Hebrew tradition, the Passover was integral to their history, to their experience as enslaved people under the Egyptian empire. They were instructed to kill a lamb and then put some of the blood on their doorposts so that they would be spared the last plague where the firstborn of Egypt uh, would die. And then second, they would notice a callback to the book of Isaiah that describes the suffering servant who is like a lamb that's led to slaughter. And so referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God seems like mixing two conflicting images. He's the promised one, like who's going to lead them to freedom, and he's also the one who's going to be sacrificed and killed which in their mind might not seem to go together because it should be either one or the other. And so for us, we're invited to immerse ourselves in the way of Christ by living in the paradox that Christ embodies. How might we live in the tensions of Jesus' life and teachings that seem to confront our simple binary worldview? Uh, on a recent episode of the Hidden Brain podcast, uh, Wendy Smith, who's the co-author of Both And Thinking, reflected on how either-or thinking limits and traps us in our decision-making. But instead, if we adopt Both And Thinking, it actually opens up to unexpected possibilities. And so in her book, she compared two companies, Polaroid and Lego. Uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, 
you know, at the peak of their success, Polaroid's whole model was around selling cheap cameras and then making all their profit off of film because people just needed to buy more film to take more pictures. But when digital cameras disrupted the market, they weren't willing to consider other models, right? They couldn't shift out of their binary thinking that their profit had to come from film. And unfortunately, they went bankrupt. She then went on to compare them to Lego, which started in the 1930s. They also started out with a binary thinking, right? They limited their blocks to just five colors and a very limited set types of blocks, like, because that's what worked for them. It took them years before they would actually even consider the color green. But when computers and video games disrupted the toy market, they had an opportunity to expand their offering. And so they realized they could both keep the core aspect of their building block system and integrate new colors and new shapes and minifigures and, you know, brands like Star Wars. And that shift for LEGO led to continued growth and relevance in the toy industry. And that's the importance of being able to be adaptive and consider an integrated solution instead of choosing one idea at the expense of the other. And that adaptive solution is based on a concept that she calls creative integration, which attempts to put together things that might typically be in competition or in conflict with one another. And so she references geniuses like Mozart and Picasso and Einstein and Virginia Woolf who put this into practice. You know, each of them were able to create brilliant masterpieces by putting together opposing ideas and finding the creative integration between them. So for example, Einstein, right? He took an object at rest and an object in motion. And he asked the question, like, how could they be both at the same time? And that's how he developed the theory of relativity. Or Picasso, like he would take dark images and light images and then put them together to create a more holistic painting. And then Virginia Woolf, she would integrate images of life and images of death. And together they would create powerful emotions in her writing. And then for Jesus, right, he had his own version of creative integration. He was a divine being living in a limited human body. He taught that if you want to be first, you need to be last. In order to be the greatest, you need to be a servant. He would offer nonviolence in the face of oppression and suffering. And most of Jesus' life and teachings incorporated these tensions that seem so counter to what we would default to. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is to actually sit in the tension of these seemingly opposing ideas that Jesus brings together. Like reflect on each of these ideas independently and then imagine what creative integration could look like. So here's one example. If we start with the practice of love and then consider what comes to mind, right? What's meaningful about how you choose to express love? Like, how are we called to love others? And then separately, what comes to mind when you think about your enemies? What emotions surface when you reflect on people you don't get along with, or who have opposing worldviews, or who have hurt you deeply? And then you put 
together this paradoxical combination to imagine what creative integration could look like. Right? Imagine the both and paradox of what Jesus is inviting us to integrate and practice. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. And then we continue in verse 38. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which is kind of a random timestamp for that moment. I don't think it was 4.20, by the way. Um, but here, Jesus is called rabbi or teacher, right? The second title that's used for him. He's someone that people see as a source of learning and understanding. And so when Jesus notices these two who have left John and started following him, he asks, what are you looking for? Or a better translation might be, what are you seeking? What is it that you need? And this question is meant to generate some deeper introspection. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, why did you decide so quickly to follow me? Like, what are your motivations? Are you even aware of what you're looking for? Which are great questions even for us to reflect on. And when these two individuals respond by asking Jesus where he's staying, they had an awareness that in order to fully understand his life and teaching, they needed to go and be in close proximity to see how he lived. And so Jesus invites them to come and see, to listen, learn, participate, be immersed. He invites them to intentionally make space and pay attention to how he practices this paradoxical way of life. And so for us, we're invited to immerse ourselves in the way of Christ by creating space for the presence of Christ, to intentionally be present to what we need to see and hear. Uh, last month, our staff, we went on a silent retreat in New Mexico at the Christ in the Desert Monastery. Uh, and honestly, if we didn't plan, if we hadn't planned this months in advance, we probably wouldn't have chosen to do it in that moment. Because leading up to that trip, there were so many responsibilities, so many events, uh, and just navigating Harmon's transition off staff. But since we had already carved out this time and space, it ended up being a much needed opportunity just to slow down and to be present to ourselves and the divine. And as we drove up to the monastery, literally, the moment we parked, I think of a video, it started snowing, right? So it was just this beautiful, magical moment. And, you know, we spent a couple of days and nights living in their guest house, experiencing daily life with the monks. Each morning, the prayer vigil started at 4 a.m., which feels as early as it sounds. <laughs> uh, and it actually made me feel better when I noticed one of the brothers, he was conveniently sitting on the back row, leaned back, looking a little bit too comfortable with his eyes closed. <laughs> but I don't blame him, it was early. Uh, and we followed their daily schedule, right? That involved multiple prayer times, a lunch in silence, some reading, some hiking, uh, which there was beautiful terrain and beautiful views. 
Uh, I think I even included, I had to sneak in a selfie. So there was even horses there. Um, <laughs> and then we'd close with evening prayer and then dinner and silence. And with that schedule, uh, we went to sleep at like 8 p.m., which I can't remember the last time, like ever. I don't think I've ever done that. Um, but it was such a shock to the system to shift this daily routine instantly like that. But it really was an immersive experience that allowed us to observe and participate, to reflect and rest. And obviously the remote location with no cell coverage, no Wi-Fi, that you know, played a huge role in making space to be present. And that was our experience, to come and see, to listen to what Christ was inviting us to consider and hear. And when we left the monastery and, and were driving to the airport, we were processing our experience. And Kelly, uh, who's helping with Greenhouse, uh, she reflected on how she was curious about how she could find ways to do what we just did, but back at home. Finding and making space for us just to listen, to rest, to experience the presence of Christ in small ways in our full and typically overscheduled routines. When we got back, Lena even tried instituting a quiet hour at her home, uh, just during the evenings to intentionally make space to be present instead of being distracted by the call of streaming services and social media. And for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is to find some creative ways to, to make space, right? to be present, to intentionally listen. Maybe it's a short walk or hike out by your nearby, nearby trail. Maybe it's practicing centering prayer. Maybe it's meeting with a spiritual director. But how might we remove distractions in order to pay attention to Christ's presence in and around us? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. And then we close in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And so here, Jesus is called the Messiah or the anointed, which is the third title that's used for him. And for those living during that time, there was an expectation and a hope for a future Messiah who would bring restoration and freedom from the oppression they were under. He would be the one who would transform the power structures around them. And based on what Andrew has heard and seen from Jesus, he invites his brother Simon to also be part of this immersive experience of being with and learning from Jesus. And when they meet, Jesus gives Simon a new name, right? Cephas, which translates to Peter. It means rock in the Aramaic. Jesus was providing him with not just a new name, but a new vision for his life. He would one day become the foundation on which the church would be formed and shaped. And Peter was beginning to experience transformation at a personal level. And he would eventually be part of forming a new community that would experience transformation collectively. And so for us, we're invited 
to immerse ourselves in the way of Christ by fostering community toward the transformation that Christ offers? And how might we create rhythms that foster a community where we collectively experience transformation? You know, that's part of the reason why we're intentionally encouraging all of our midweek groups to go through this book club this spring. And we recognize how, in the last couple of years, um, it's really disrupted our ability to gather and connect as a community. And I know that as we've had to reset and rebuild our groups, uh, it's been challenging to start new groups for our community. But with this book club and, and just being it limited to the spring, we're hoping that it provides an easier on-ramp just for people to start groups and find community together. And as you heard earlier in the announcements, we're going through uh, the book, The Brain and the Spirit, which is written by our very own Jenna. And she does a beautiful job of reflecting on the questions and theology that we've been navigating the last few years as a community, all in the context of neuroscience. And it makes for a fascinating exploration of just how our understanding of a nonviolent God, how that impacts and actually is interconnected with our brains and how they're wired and how they can be rewired. And when we, introduced, when we were introduced to a theology of a nonviolent God years ago, it's really transformed our community in how we view and interact with God and with others. You know, tomorrow we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's life and legacy and the impact he had on the civil rights movement uh, for the most oppressed and vulnerable in our country. And for any of you who are interested, uh, Rachel and I are planning to go to the march, uh, which is at, I think, 9 a.m. tomorrow at UT campus. And they're going to head down to the Capitol and then from there work their way to the Houston Tilliston campus where there'll be a community celebration. Uh, but it should be a meaningful expression of solidarity and just remembrance as there's still a lot of work that we're called to in advocating for the most marginalized in our country. But Martin Luther King's vision for change and transformation was entirely based on the ideals and practices of nonviolence. And his hope was that through nonviolence, transformation at an individual and a societal level could happen. And that would create what he called the beloved community. And this is how he reflected on this. He said, there are certain things we can say about this method that seeks justice without violence. It does not seek to defeat or humiliate the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. The aftermath of violence is bitterness. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. This is a method that seeks to transform and to redeem and win the friendship of the opponent and make it possible for all to live together in a community and not continually live in bitterness and friction. That was his dream. And ultimately, that is the way of Christ, to foster and build a community through nonviolence and transformation that Christ modeled for us. And so as we close, you know, my hope for us, Fox, is that we would continue to look for the small and ordinary moments to immerse ourselves in the way of Christ, to intentionally make space so that we could wonder and creatively, creatively practice the paradoxical nature of Christ's teaching. 
and just to lean into this community where we can collectively be transformed by the Spirit of Christ. And so let me close with this prayer. God, who is mystery and paradox, both infinite and present with us in this finite moment, may we find comfort in the discomfort of living out the tensions that Jesus modeled for us. Jesus, who chose to be human in order to become one of us, may we come and see who you are so that we might be the same presence for others. And Spirit, who draws us together in relationship and community, may we strive for the common good that transforms the world around us and the world within us. We ask all this in the love of God, our Creator, the compassion of Christ, and the accompaniment of the Spirit. Amen.